And today we have a yeah. special lecture. There's a few people still Recording. coming, so before we introduce uh, Professor Morris, I just wanted to say that next week we have uh, some good uh, lectures here in this hall. You have a sheet in the material that's in front of you. And on Monday we have Dan Faluni, uh, who will be speaking about the uh, boycott movement and developing a scholarly, intellectual uh, response to the BDS movement. And Dan had a, uh, an article in uh, the Algemeiner, Joshua Levitt, the author of the article, is here. And it really touched the nerve. And Dan is actually joining the forces with this gap, and we're going to elaborate about this on Monday. So we're trying to create a group of scholars to deal with the BBS movement and to deal with it in a way um, at an academic intellectual level, but also on a, I guess on a professional level, because many scholars, even in New York City, uh, find it very difficult to speak out clearly about their affiliation or affinity to Israel because they feel that um, their careers, their progress in their careers will be jeopardized. So Dan has touched the nerve and they're starting a group of scholars from around New York that will come and uh, participate on uh, almost like a, perhaps like the feminist movement in the 60s and 70s to try and uh, deal with issues of consciousness and, uh, and that sort of thing. So Dan is here, and he'll be speaking on Monday. Uh, he's the gentleman in the back near the door. Um, Benny Morris, uh, Benny, sorry, Benny Weinthal, who is a fellow at the Foundation for the Defense of Democracy and also a journalist for the Jerusalem Post and other uh, leading publications internationally. <coughs> he'll be speaking on Wednesday, March the 26th. It's not on the uh, schedule. Uh, Benny is here. He's based in Berlin. He's the gentleman here uh, at the center of the table. And he'll be speaking next week, so it's an honor to have these two uh, scholars and intellectuals uh, join us at the ISGAP events. And I'd also like to acknowledge uh, the director of the AJC, David Harris, just walked into the room. It's nice that you've joined us. Welcome. And today, we have the uh, distinct honor to have welcome back to ISGAP, uh, a friend of ISGAP in our work, Professor Benny Morris. Benny Morris is currently a professor of history in the uh, Middle East Studies in the Department, so Department of Middle East and History at Ben Gurion University. He's been a leading figure and was a leading figure in the so-called New Historians for over two, dec two decades ago, helped to reshape the understanding of the Arab-Israeli conflict. Um, and he actually coined this term the new historians to describe himself and others. Professor Morris um, graduated from Cambridge University with a PhD in modern European history and returned to Israel to work as a scholar but also as a uh, correspondent for the Jerusalem Post and he worked with the Jerusalem Post for 12 years. Um, and in the 1980s began to uh, began reading through Israeli government archives and he turned his attention to the origins of the Palestinian refugee problem which created all sorts of waves politically and academically. And he's also gone on to write very important books uh, uh, including Righteous Victims, A History of the Zionist Arab Conflict, uh, The Israeli Border Wars and the Birth of the Palestinian Refugee Problem We Visited. And he also wrote uh, the book 1948, the first Arab-Israeli war. And as a uh, fellow scholar, and uh, welcome Benny back as a friend to Isgap, it's really an honor for us because he's a scholar that has always stood brave and pursued truth uh, through his research. 
and he continues to do so to this day. So it's really an honor. I was asked to talk about um, one aspect or one way of looking at the 1948 war, the first Arab-Israeli war, which <coughs> I think is the, uh, the important, the most important among Israel, the Israeli-Arab wars, and in some ways, unfortunately, it's um, the issues opened up by that war have been reopened and are currently with us at a different level. Um, I'm going to talk about 1948 uh, as a jihad, as a holy war. Um, in January 1948, a few weeks after the United Nations passed the partition resolution, um, and a few weeks after the Palestinian Arab militias began their assault, on the emergent state of Israel, and a woman called Matiel Muranam was interviewed in Jerusalem. And Matiel Muranam was a Lebanese Christian woman who had married a Jerusalem Muslim, had moved to Jerusalem, and headed the Arab Women's Organization, which was an affiliate of the Arab Higher Committee. The Arab Higher Committee was the executive body of the Palestinian Arab National Movement, the body led by uh, Haj Amin al-Husseini, which um, um, drew the Arabs uh, of Palestine into their revolt against the British in 1936-39, and led the Arabs of Palestine into the war against the Zionists in 1947-48. So she was the head of their women's section, if you like. And she was interviewed in January 19. 48, a few weeks after the start of hostilities. And this is what she said to her interviewer. The UN partition decision has united all Arabs as they have never been united before, not even against the Crusaders. A Jewish state has no chance to survive now that the holy war has been declared. All the Jews will eventually be massacred. Christian woman from Lebanon would move to Palestine. A few weeks later, in midway in the war, by which time the Palestinian Arab militias and Palestinian society in general had been defeated, um, and the Arab states had invaded uh, uh, Palestine, and some of them had attacked Israel in uh, May 1948. In August 1948, one of the members of the Arab Higher Committee, um, Emil Ruri, um, wrote, wrote uh, responded to an article in the Daily Telegraph in London in basically saying that a, the solution to the Palestinian refugee problem, which had begun to evolve in the course of the war, in a, did not lay by way of repatriation. You couldn't repatriate the Arabs of Palestine back into the Jewish state. And the Jews would, as he put it, would hold them hostage and torture them severely. What he said was that a return of the Palestinian refugees would only occur with the annihilation or elimination of Israel. As he put it, we must inculcate in the heart of every Arab hatred for the Jews, and we must then renew the jihad against Israel. The refugees would return to their places after Palestine was reconquered. 
I gave you these two uh, examples of the jihadist perception on the Arab side of the war. Um, the historians of 1948 have tended over the decades uh, to see the 1948 war as a nationalist war between two national movements, um, um, two collectives, two peoples, who are fighting over a, group, a piece of territory. Um, uh, much like national wars between European states have been fought over the centuries. Um, there was, of course, a difference when France and Germany were fighting over, say, uh, uh, fighting uh, uh, you know, in the 19th, 20th centuries, they were fighting usually about borderlands, that is, the marchlands, the peripheries of each state, Alsace-Lorraine, who would occupy, who would control those territories. In the case of the <coughs> Palestinian um, uh, Zionist conflict, we're talking about a fight over the whole of the territory. It's an unusual national conflict in which each side wants, claims the whole of the territory. Um, um, this certainly was also the Zionist position until 1937, and certainly was the Arab position in the course of 1948. They wanted all of Palestine. Um, but I, I would say that the, the, the war of 1948, and this is a result of my research over the past few years, which produced uh, the book 1948, uh, so the history, general history of the war, in my, my research, <coughs> at least uh, to my, in my reading, um, uncovered uh, quite a lot of material indicating that the war from the, from the Arab side, from the Palestinian side, and then thereafter from um, the Arab state side, was also a jihad. It wasn't a simple political war over territory. It was a war uh, of religion and culture as well. I'm saying from the Arab side because the Zionist side in 1948 um, was essentially a secular society. The, the Zionist um, uh, <coughs> enterprise in Palestine was essentially a secular um, uh, movement. Um, it was led by people who were essentially atheists or agnostics who had in, in, in effect rejected religion as part of the package of the diaspora which they had turned their backs on and fled from and moved to Palestine to establish a new society and a state uh, which would be secular. The demography of Palestine at the time in terms of the Jewish community was certainly 90 plus percent secular and, made, and less than 10 percent religious. 10 percent would be a, a high figure probably for the number of people who, could, who would um, define themselves as religious in Palestine at that time, and not only were they very small in number, but they were insignificant in terms of influence. They didn't um, uh, control any of the organs, pre-state organs or the new state organs uh, after May 1948. <coughs> um, so, so essentially from the Zionist side, uh, the war wasn't being fought and wasn't conceived at all as a holy war, a war dictated by religious conviction or religious uh, truth or a religious purpose. <coughs> uh, the Arab society, the Arab society was different. Now, there are several methodolo methodological problems with looking at the war as also a jihad. I'm not saying it wasn't also a political war, I'm saying it was also a jihad, and perhaps prominently in may many people's minds, primarily a jihad, but that's not clear. There are methodological problems in this. The first of them arises, in other words, to pin down the nature of the war in terms of the people who are fighting it on the Arab side. 
One of them is very simple, and that is that the Arab archives were all closed. The Palestinians produced no real archives, and the Arab states may have produced archives, but we don't know if they did, because they're not open. So there may be lots of good documents in the Egyptian, Jordanian, <coughs> Syrian archives, and so on, but they're unavailable, inaccessible to all historians, not just Jews, not just Americans, but also Arabs. They're closed, as is the nature of dictatorships. We do not open their archives. <coughs> That's one problem. Um, the second problem is, um, is how do you define a war as jihad? <coughs> what do you need to be able to say, for an historian to be able to say, this was a jihad? Does it take the political leaders who go to war, to, they have to state, they believe and then state that they're going to jihad. Is that necessary? Will that help us to reach such a definition? Or is it the religious establishment in each country which defines the war as such, and then we can conclude or accept this definition as a, a truthful about the war? In, in, is it the population which has to basically accept this uh, as the, the nature of the war uh, and define it as such? And here we have a problem again because of the lack of democracy in the Arab states and the illiteracy of the Arab masses. We're talking about societies with over 90% illiteracy, no public opinion surveys, uh, no free expression of opinion, <coughs> no recording of opinion by the masses, both the civilians and the soldiery. How do we know what they were thinking uh, in terms of the war they were uh, actually engaged in? Did they see it as jihad? We have no, almost no uh, um, evidence uh, of this. <coughs> um, so the, these are methodological problems. Uh, there's another methodological problem which arises in terms of uh, this definition of the war. Um, and that is that societies in which there is no separation of church and state, such as Arab societies during 1948, and to, to a great degree also in decades later, um, the, the, the discourse of leaders is often couched in religious terms, whether or not they are deeply, um, they have deep religious convictions. In other words, Farouk may, uh, the, the king of uh, Egypt at the time, may have talked in terms of, uh, we're embarking on a jihad, but was this heartfelt? Was this sincere? Was he really expressing what he felt, or was he just pandering to the religious uh, bureaucracies, or, or hoping to use this, this catchphrase, jihad, or uh, things to do with religious sites, uh, to mobilize the masses, because that would speak to them. You talk about religion, the masses uh, 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 understand what you're talking about. You talk about nationalism, sovereignty, uh, uh, perhaps that wouldn't have spoken to them, and uh, it wouldn't have helped to mobilize them. So uh, the problem of discourse here is important. I'll just point to something more modern, uh, just to highlight the problem. When Sadat, the president of Egypt, uh, went to speak in the Knesset in 1977, he opened his speech in the Knesset with the phrase in, in the name of um, in Allah, uh, the merciful, the righteous, whatever. Um, uh, this didn't necessarily mean that uh, he felt this. Maybe he was actually a religious man, but this is something that, this is the normal discourse of Arab leaders. It doesn't mean that they're giving a religious message or trying to uh, persuade their people <coughs> of something in the realm of religion. It's just the way they speak. So how do you know when the religi religious leaders in 48 are speaking in these, in these terms, in these, this sort of phraseology, 
does this really mean they're involved in jihad, or are they just saying it because that's the nature of the discourse in their societies at the time? So these are methodological problems when approaching this question of the definition of the war as jihad, which is worth, or these are problems worth bearing in mind. In the history of the Islamic world is replete with holy wars against the infidel. I would say that there were four waves of jihad in, in the course of the history of the contact between the Muslim world and the West, if you like, or the Christian world. The first wave, of course, is with the rise of Islam in the 7th century AD, the Muslim masses, the newly converted Muslim soldiery, push out of Arabia, conquer the Middle East, North Africa, enter Spain, and so on. And this is the first wave of jihad. And of course, it's an aggressive jihad. It's a war against the infidel to conquer the territory of the infidel and ultimately to convert, push out, kill, or convert the populace to this new religion. In the second wave in, of jihad, I would say, is in the Middle Ages, 10th, 11th, 12th centuries, and that's the defensive jihad in, by the Muslim armies and masses in, against in, in, the incursion by Westerners, Christians, into Islamic lands, and that's against the Crusaders. That is the war against the Crusaders, would occupy Palestine and regions beyond, set up their kingdoms in the Middle East, in the Levant, and the Arabs eventually drove them out in a waves of jihad, or if you like, one large wave of jihad over the 12th, 13th century, centuries. In the third wave, which was an aggressive wave of jihad against the West, was of course in the 15th to 17th centuries, the Turkish eruption the Ottoman eruption out of Turkey northwards into the Balkans uh, to the gates of Budapest and Vienna in, uh, when they tried to conquer Central Europe, uh, Southern and Central Europe. Uh, basically, they returned back, but they held on to much of the Balkans, the Ottoman Empire, for centuries afterwards. <coughs> and today, I think we're in the fourth, we're in the throes of the fourth wave of jihad in, in which uh, the Muslims describe it uh, as defensive, uh, attempting to turn back um, Western penetration, um, which is cultural, uh, economic, uh, military, in the case of America and Iraq, Afghanistan, and so on. Um, 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 but it's, uh, this, this jihad, which has been described as a civilizational war or a clash of civilizations, certainly such, it is seen as such from, uh, by many Muslims, perhaps by the Muslim world in general. It stretches from uh, the Philippines, where there are uh, Muslim rebellion, there is a Muslim rebellion, uh, through um, uh, much of the Middle East, in Nigeria, uh, the streets of uh, uh, the suburbs of Paris, in New York, as we know, etc. This is the, the fourth wave of jihad. And as I say, uh, many Muslims it presented and described it as defensive. In, in, they're trying to push back to resist the West's uh, incursion into their lands. In, 
Palestine, the Israeli or Zionist-Palestinian Arab conflict can be seen within this context of this fourth wave of jihad, in my view. In Israel, Zionist entity in Israel, which um, were defined by the Zionists themselves, from Herzl onwards, uh, as an outpost of the West in a barbaric area, if you like, a villa in the jungle or a villa in the desert. Um, and so the Arabs also saw this as an incursion of Europeans into their domain, in, uh, even a colonial incursion, as it's often defined by Arabs. Uh, and this is a major battlefront in this fourth wave of global jihad, in my view. Unfortunately, I would say also from the Israeli point of view. <coughs> One can include in this, incidentally, which is uh, something I'm in, uh, researching at the moment, uh, one can include in this also the, uh, arm, the <coughs> uh, Turkish elimination of the Christian minorities in Turkey in the course before World War I, during World War I, after World War I, primarily the Armenians and Greeks. This can be also seen within this context of a resurgent Islam combating <coughs> the infidel Christian world. There is an argument uh, among, um, Muslim theologians, there was an argument among Muslim theologians uh, after the 7th, 8th centuries um, over um, the definition of jihad when they were talking about war um, a, a against the infidel. And the argument revolved around, much of it revolved around the, the question of defensiveness. Is Defensive jihad was, of course, always seen as legitimate, um, but whether jihad could also be waged uh, aggressively. Uh, not in terms of defending your lands or your culture, but in terms of expansion of uh, the Islamic domain. Um, but in general, the Quran, the, the um, <laughs> a summoning of jihad, of the Muslims to jihad, uh, is embedded in a, a particular sentence in the Quran, which says, um, which calls on the believers uh, to wage holy war against the infidel. It says, in that sentence, and this is what it's all based on, if you like, fight those who do not believe in Allah or in Judgment Day and who do not accept the true religion, even if they be the peoples of the book, meaning Jews or Christians, eh, until they pay the jizya in submission and feel themselves submissive. In other words, you must wage jihad against the infidel eh, so, uh, until he submits, essentially, until he is conquered. And, eh, that, that's eh, what, what the, the theory, the theology of jihad is based on. The idea of jihad against the Zionist enterprise um, predates, predates the 1947-48 war. Um, in March 1936, I'll give, just give you several examples. In March 1936, the Speaker of the Iraqi Parliament, Iraq was already by then an independent state, a man called, called Said al-Khaj Tabib. Um, he visited Palestine and called for jihad against the Zionists while, during his visit. Um, a decade before, um, the Mufti of Gaza had issued a fatwa, a religious ruling, against land sales to Jews 
arguing that the Jews uh, were no longer uh, wards of Islam, were no longer um, uh, <laughs> uh, legitimate wards of Islam, they shouldn't be defended by Islam, and uh, uh, because they were apostates and infidels, um, and ruled, ruled against any contact essentially with Jews, meaning the Zionists in Palestine. Um, during the Arab revolt of 1936-39 against the British, but also against the Zionist enterprise in Palestine, uh, the discourse of the rebels was studded with a jihad, jihadi uh, phraseology um, uh, and was seen by the rebels themselves and by the British also as a religious struggle, a religious uh, a revolt, not just a, a revolt to a, you know, a, a move out from under a colonial regime to liberate themselves from a colonial regime, but, but also a, as a religious struggle against infidels who were in charge. In, in the, the Arab Higher Committee, which led that revolt in Palestine, included the following typical sentence in its uh, a statement uh, at the start of the um, revolt. Because of the general feeling of danger that envelops this noble nation, uh, there is a need for solidarity and unity and a focus on strengthening the holy national jihad movement. This is how they define the uh, rebellion. Preachers in, that, in, in the Nablus area, religious preachers were prominent among those who are mobilizing the masses, uh, the militias, for uh, combat. In 1947, in November, the United Nations passed the Partition Resolution. Uh, the response um, was in, 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 by the Arabs of Palestine and by the Arab states surrounding Palestine was, of course, rejection of the Partition Resolution, which uh, called for the establishment of two states, a Jewish state and an Arab state, in a partition Palestine. They rejected it, and uh, the day following the resolution, on the 30th of November, the Palestinian militias, in very disorganized fashion, began to shoot, uh, and that thus opened um, the snowballing civil war, which was the first part of the 1948 war, the civil war between the two communities in Palestine, which, as I say, was followed in May 1948 by the pan-Arab invasion of the newly founded uh, State of Israel. On the 2nd of December 1947, and this is the crucial date, and I think the crucial event, if you want, in the definition of what happened subsequently as a jihad, as a religious war on the Arab side, on 2nd of November, December 1947, three, four days after the UN uh, passed the partition resolution, the ulama, the uh, Council of Theologians of Al-Azhar University in Cairo, um, which is the pro most prominent, the predominant um, uh, religious body which issues religious rulings, fatwas, in the Sunni Arab world, which is the majority uh, uh, part of Islam, in the Arab world, the Shia and the Sunni, the Sunnis are the majority in the Arab world, and the ulama of Al-Azhar, the council of wise men, headed by the rector of Al-Azhar, eh, those are, if you like, the pope of the Sunni Arab world. There are a few other centers of religious ruling, the, the Sheikh of Mecca and so on, but the most important, eh, as accepted eh, over the past 1400 years or so, eh, is, is the 
in, or since the founding of the university in the 10th century is the ulama of uh, Al-Azhar. Uh, on the 2nd of December 1947, they issued a fatwa which called on the Arabs, the, the Muslim world, all Muslims, uh, to join a jihad in defense of Arab Palestine. Um, uh, the liberation of Palestine is a religious duty, as they put it, for all Muslims without exception, great and small. The Islamic and Arab governments should without delay take effective and radical measures, military or otherwise. This pronouncement by the ulama was repeated, of, of Al-Azhar, was repeated in April 1948, just before the pan-Arab invasion, um, perhaps in part as pressure vis-a-vis -vis the Egyptian government and the other Arab governments to actually carry out this invasion because they weren't that certain of what they were going to do in April. They only decided at the last moment, uh, the Egyptians, to actually invade. Uh, uh, the ulama of Al-Azhar issued in April a second fatwa reiterating the first one. And indeed, uh, they issued it again in December 1948, which was a time by which the the uh, Egyptian army had more or less been defeated by the, the Israelis. In other words, even in defeat, they simply said, we must continue this jihad, another round, another round. That's essentially what they were saying. Uh, uh, we must continue with it until uh, the um, <coughs> Zionist entity is crushed. Um, the rector of Al-Azhar on the 15th of May declared the hour of jihad as struck, 15th of May being the date of the pan-Arab invasion, including the Egyptian army's invasion of Palestine. The hour of jihad has struck. A hundred of you will defeat a thousand of the infidels. This is the hour in which Allah promised paradise. <coughs> and uh, the, uh, the ulama of al-Azhar uh, uh, also spoke uh, to the uh, various reluctant Arab leaders, uh, certainly by the end of the war, um, and they, they uh, condemned to damnation any Arab leader who did not participate in the jihad. They were thinking especially of Abdullah, who was more or less backtracking and moving away from warfare eh, by the last months of 1948. The jihadism of 1948 <coughs> is accompanied by a strong dose of anti-Semitism. The Prime Minister of Jordan in, in 1947, Samiri Fai, was interviewed by a number of Western journalists, two, two Western journalists, British journalists who came to him. And he told, told them in autumn, just before the start of the war, autumn 47, he told them, the Jews are a people to be feared. Give them another 25 years and they will be all over the Middle East, in our country and Syria and Lebanon, in Iraq and Egypt. This is the Prime Minister of Jordan, Samir Rifai. They were responsible for starting the two world wars, he told the journalists. Yes, I have read and studied, and I know they were behind Hitler at the beginning of his movement. Ibn Saud, in correspondence, Ibn Saud was the um, king of uh, Saudi Arabia and the keeper of the, holy, the most holy sites of, of uh, Islam, in correspondence with the, with the FDR, with Roosevelt, in 1943, reiterated more or less the same points, basically saying the Jews are the historic enemies of Muslims and carry the greatest hatred for the nation of Muhammad, and we cannot deal with them in any way. 
During 47 and 48, as the war was impending and once the war was already underway, a number of senior uh, Arab politicians harked back to uh, the Crusades, to the Islamic struggle and success in the struggle against uh, uh, the European Christian invaders of Palestine um, 800 years uh, before. Um, Abdul Rahman Azam was the Secretary General of the Arab League and more or less the spokesman for the Arab cause in 1948. <coughs> they had a one unified spokesman, that would be the man. Uh, he wrote, you the Jews, uh, he didn't write, he said it to two Jews he met secretly, Abel Sudan <coughs> and another man called David Horowitz, uh, who later became um, the head of the uh, Bank of Israel. Uh, Abba Iban, of course, became the foreign, foreign minister of Israel. Uh, in 1947, they both, both worked for the Jewish agency, and he met, they met him secretly, Abdul Rahman Azam, and he told them, you, the Jews, are a temporary phenomenon. Centuries ago, the Crusaders established themselves in our midst against our will, and in 200 years, we ejected them. Meaning that even if we don't succeed in this current struggle in 1948, uh, 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 your fate is uh, going to be similar to the Crusaders. <coughs> Shukri al-Kawakli, the president of Syria, the following year, during the war itself in 1948, uh, came out with similar statements about the Pan-Arab invasion. Overcoming the Crusaders took a long time, but the result was victory. There's no doubt that history is repeating itself. President of Syria, 1948. Uh, Riyadh al-Sulf, the Prime Minister of Lebanon, said similar things also in 1948. So it was no surprise that, uh, the, if you like, the most prominent of the Arab leaders, or at least the, most pro the, the leader of the most important of the Arab states, which was Egypt, uh, King Farouk of Egypt, and his foreign minister, um, a man called Khashaba, um, in the summer of 42, after the invasion in May 48, um, said that, for, and they, they told this to Western diplomats, for the whole Arab world, the struggle is a matter of religion. And for them, for the Arabs in, in, in the Arab world, for them it's a matter of Jewish religion against their own religion. According to Farouk, the Arab masses were gripped by widespread, widespread religious fervor and men were keen to enter the fray as the shortest road to heaven. Even the king of Jordan, Abdallah, in 48, um, found occasion to uh, uh, speak of the war itself in religious terms. On, four, on 14 May, as his army was assembling just east of the river Jordan, about to cross the river westward into Palestine, he spoke to his troops, to the Arab Legion, in the following terms. And Abdallah was the most moderate of the Arab leaders at the time. He'd been negotiating with the Zionists before 48, and he was to negotiate with the Zionists at the cost of his life, in fact. After 48, he was assassinated by a Palestinian in 1951, partly because of his secret negotiations with the Israelis. But on the May 14th, he too, <coughs> was at least, uh, at least uh, adopted the discourse of holy war, didn't actually uh, believe in it himself, uh, when he said uh, to, as I say, his troops who had massed, assembled uh, across the Jordan, uh, he who will be killed will be a martyr, a shaheed, 
He who lives will, glad, will be glad of fighting for Palestine. I remind you of the jihad and of the martyrdom of your great-grandfathers. I'm not sure who he was referring to, but in, in terms of the grandparents, but that's, uh, that was his um, um, <coughs> speech at the time. Um, let, let me conclude these remarks and, uh, by saying, um, and this isn't usually done by academics, but how tentative my conclusions are. Um, what I'm saying is <coughs> that from the evidence I saw, there are good grounds for regarding the war as a jihad from the Arab perspective in 1948. Um, I've given you a little of the, some of the evidence. Um, what really is necessary, and that I didn't do, I was researching the war itself, not various cultural aspects of the war, if you like. Um, um, what is necessary, probably, if somebody wants to look in greater depth at, the, at, at this question of was it perceived as jihad and was it jihad? Was it perceived by the Arab masses and leaders and religious establishments? And was it actually jihad? Uh, more systematic research needs to be done. Uh, there is the problem of closed Arab archives, but on the other hand, there is access to newspapers. There were newspapers in Morocco, in Tunis, in Syria, in Iraq. Uh, some of them probably reported uh, on uh, uh, sermons delivered at major mosques. Uh, uh, this work needs to be done, a lot of legwork, uh, to deepen our understanding of the jihadi nature of the 48 war from the Arab perspective. Um, but my feeling is that the, the, the surface which I've scraped in terms of the evidence uh, which I encountered uh, uh, gives us uh, a good lead about um, the nature of the war in Arab eyes. Question and answer. Oh, thanks. So, so Benny is happy to agree to take some uh, questions and comments. Mm -hmm. Comments. Okay. So here, and we're going to pass around the microphone. So be grateful if you could. Yes. Yes. Uh, professor, in the course of your research, uh, you come across the concept of the inalienability of Islamic lands, and if so how that may affect the war at the outset, and they continue to be a factor to the present day. I'm not sure if, uh, it's something I've encountered in my research, because my research dealt with the, the past, or the 48 war, or the 50s, in, in, uh, and it was taken as obvious that uh, the land should be restored to Islam. Um, uh, in the Hamas charter, it, it says clearly from 1988 that uh, lands uh, which were once Islamic should revert to Islamic control uh, ultimately. Um, you do find occasionally, um, well, let me put it another way. In 1947, in that famous conversation, secret conversation between Abdul Rahman Azam, the Secretary General of the Arab League, and Abbe Iban and um, David Gorowitz, the two Jewish agency representatives, um, um, Azam said something interesting, interesting from the historian's perspective. He said, well, we may have lost Andalus. In other words, we may have lost Spain. And maybe that's something we cannot recover because of the strength of the Christian world. It's not something which was once Islamic and now can be recovered, even though maybe Islam demands that we recover it. It's not realistic. But I don't think Palestine is in the same context. It's not something we necessarily will lose. And even if we temporarily lose it, as, he, as I quoted, 
and we will regain it after or within 200 years. In, in the Prime Minister, incidentally, of um, the Palestine Authority, the first one, Abu Allah, he also referred in one of his speeches, a very rare reference, but in one of his speeches to Andalus, to Spain, uh, which uh, needs, he didn't actually say it needs to be recovered, but he referred to it in the same breath as, referred, as he referred to Palestine, in the same sentence, uh, implying that that's also something which is a wholly Islamic property and must in the end, end up in, in, in Muslim hands. Chuck Freela from uh, the Kennedy School of Harvard and Tel Aviv University of the IGC and a friend of uh, his campus. First of all, thanks. Can you hear? Is it on? It's on. No, 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 no. It's on. It's, it's on. on. It's on to the. It's for recording. Thanks for the historical overview, which I found very interesting because I and I think most of us tend to have looked at the early decades as being a national conflict and only becoming a more religious-based one with, after the Iranian Revolution and the rise of Hezbollah in 83 and Hamas subsequently. But the question is, what are the ramifications of emphasizing and recognizing the jihadi consequence, the aspect of the conflict? One of them is obviously that if it's a religious conflict, it's infinitely harder to resolve than if it's a nationalist one. What are some of the other ramifications? Well, I'm sure there are a lot, but uh, as, as you suggest, uh, the, the question is, uh, what are the ramifications if the conflict is actually uh, a religious conflict or more a religious conflict than a political conf conflict with the implication that in some way it makes the conflict more severe or less soluble? Um, well, I, th I think the Hezbollah is the answer. Um, the Hezbollah, which is the Shiite militia and party, main political party in in uh, Lebanon has proven to be a much more formidable foe to Israel than any previous guerrilla organization, and perhaps in some ways even more than Arab governments and their standing armies. Um, people with deep religious convictions are willing to kill themselves and kill lots of other people um, uh, as well, preferably lots of other people, but also um, themselves. Um, tend to be, uh, and especially if trained well in the Hezbollah, has been trained well over the decades by the Iranian Revolutionary Guard, um, tend to be more resilient and more uh, uh, lethal enemies. And, and in that sense, um, <coughs> um, if the war is, or the conflict is seen by the Arabs uh, uh, as a, a religious endeavor, this poses a greater problem for Israel. Um, let me say something about the Arab Spring, if I'm really talking about that. It, it appeared when the Arab revolts began in 2011, and spread across the Arab world, that uh, they were headed for Islamization of the Arab world, that the, the immediate outcome of these rebellions would be a growing Islamic fervor in the Arab world, and perhaps the governments would uh, turn Islamist. Uh, and they did in some places, even though this was stalled somewhat in Egypt, or maybe permanently, I don't know. Um, and the fear was, well, let me put it another way, that the, um, the, the tumult in the Arab world, in the short term, eased Israel's strategic position. Because hitherto, before that, it had been 
worried about large standing Arab armies with large conventional armaments, uh, the Syrian army, the Egyptian army, uh, the Iraqi army, and so on. Um, um, and these, after 2011, all in one way or other, either disintegrated or became otherwise engaged. The Egyptians suppressing uh, internal insurgency, the uh, Syrians uh, fighting, uh, God knows, you know, basically against the Syrian people, or much of the Syrian people, the Iraqis engaged in their own civil wars. Um, so this sort of reduced the burden on Israel militarily, and Israel, incidentally, uh, cut back in its military strength over the past year. It, uh, it demobilized about a certain number of uh, armored brigades, because it thought there's no longer a large conventional threat. The problem with this is that in the medium and long term, should the hand of the Islamists uh, should the Islamists gain control of much of the Middle East, and this seems to be in prospect in Syria, it might be in prospect in Jordan, in, uh, in Egypt it's been uh, thwarted, uh, temporarily at least, but should the Islamists gain control in the Middle East, we might re re return to a situation or a paradigm from the 12th and 13th centuries when Salah al-Din, the Kurdish Muslim general, managed to unite the Arab world against the Christian infidel invaders and ultimately destroy the Crusader state. I'm not comparing Israel to the Crusader states, but, but the, the idea of unity in the Arab world uh, forged through religious, common religious conviction or fervor is something which Israel may face in the medium and long term as a result of this Arab spring. So in, in, in answer to your question, it poses a real threat. Should this happen? Maybe I overstressed them. I'm not sure why they're tentative. Well, there might be an explanation, and then you seem to ignore the figure, except mentioned in Hadi Hussein, who didn't just spend the war years in, in Berlin because he was running away from the British imperialists, but uh, established tremendous affinity. They went both ways between Britain and uh, participated, was aware of being on the first among the Germans who were aware of the Holocaust. And there's a great, you know, there's uh, significant literature now on that factor. Jeffrey Herf's book, uh, uh, Arab Propaganda. There's a new one by Barry Rubin. And the latest one by Rubin. Prior to that, this guy, Kunzel. So there's a huge amount of documentation showing that, that it was precisely the Islamist slant of the of, of Hussein that attracted, you know, the Hitler found, so uh, the Nazis found positive. Was a, Significant uh, historical background to that, going all the way back to I'm not, I'm the not First sure. World War. But the fact is that the Palestinian National Movement was led by a Nazi. Yeah. And if they had succeeded even before that, there were preparations for another Holocaust in in the Second World War. If if, uh, if yeah. Rommel had won what more do you mean? Now, I, I'm not sure the definition of Husseini as a Nazi is right. I think the definition of him as an anti-Semite is right. This is what the, was the common ground. It's not that Hitler was enamored with Islamism. Hitler liked a, a fellow anti-Semite to be in charge in the Arab world if that worked out, or at least as an ally in the Arab world. But I think the significant point about Husseini in connection with what I was talking about 
is that Husseini was a cleric. He was a Muslim cleric. And it's very unusual in the 20th century or in the 19th and 20th centuries for a national movement to be led by a religious figure. The only one I can think of is Macarius of Cyprus. He was an archbishop who led the uh, uh, Cypriot Greeks. But, but uh, clerics do not lead national movements in the modern world. And when they do, it shows us something different about those national movements. And in the case of the Palestinian Arabs, uh, I think this was commensurate with or corresponded with the amount of is Islamic uh, uh, you know, undertone which, which uh, governed or was present in that movement, in the Palestine Arab National Movement. I think that's the point. Him being a cleric was symbolic and embodied this religious fervor. And he was able, of course, to mobilize the masses using exactly that. The religious uh, uh, argument, the Jewish threat to the uh, Muslim sites, and so on. Um, um, but I, if you, I want to be historically fair, and I, I would like to be, about the Husseini issue, um, I, I think he admired, liked Hitler's anti-Semitism, found a, a common cause in it. But I think his primary drive, when aligning with with the, the uh, Germans, was that they were the enemies of the British and would help the Arabs to cast out the West from the Middle East. British imperialism and uh, allow him to have an independent Palestine governed by him. I, I think this was the major drive, but anti-Semitism was there as well. That's how I wrote it. Quite no, the Herb book is, is not, deals with his, his, his broad, the Herb book deals with broadcasts from Germany in Arabic, some of them by Husseini, to the Arab world, in which he calls for jihad and killing Jews. Obviously, this is what he wanted. But it doesn't mean that uh, he wasn't impelled by his desire to get the British out of the Middle East. Uh, professor, I'm somewhat bemused by your presentation in terms of the definitional element of jihad. It is my understanding, and I think the common understanding, is religious Yeah, okay. Now, in law, for example, I think Cardoso said, don't be bemused by the tyranny of labels. Now, whether you call it jihad or not, if you have a religious war, and particularly in the context of jihad, the animating element there, oh, it's a defensive war in terms of, as you indicated, we've got to expel those who have invaded our territory rightly or wrongly. Why defensive? Because that would be the war of annihilation. He who draws his sword against me, I better destroy it, as opposed to my attacking him. What difference, why don't we accept their definition of I am engaged in a jihad, a war of extermination? What, how else would you define it? Give me your alternative. And the second question is, I have uh, ordered your book, uh, the revision, and I was wondering in what basic ways has there been a revision of your original text? I'm, I'm waiting to get it. In other words, you're defining this as jihad. It's almost, to me, almost condescending in terms of if, if whatever way you call it, wasn't the jihad. They have considered this. Yeah, no, I, I, th I think I, I said that. I think from the, the, the Arab perspective, the struggle to this day, maybe even in, in 
more deeply in, in the present, present, in the present day, in present days, is that the war is has a large religious component and may even be essentially a religious cultural war. Uh, and in 48, it certainly obtruded. The religious element was very important in waging the war, as I said. I don't think, I, I, I seem to hear from you, that the Israelis and the Jews should also define the war as jihad from their side. And I don't think that's the case. Uh, I don't, that wasn't, certainly wasn't the case in 48. And it still is not the case, even though Israeli society has become more religious, demographically more Israelis are uh, of the religious What about persons. the rest of the world? How have what? they defined the 48 war? In other words, how would the United States, that. how would the EU define them? I think that's very important well, in the context of our current situation. It's not just we, it's the rest of the yeah, world. Yeah, well, uh, you have no argument with me. I, I, wrote a book, uh, 19, book, well, my book, 1948, in its conclusions, uh, uh, stresses that the war, as seen from the Arab side, was jihadi. And uh, presumably the book is read by English-speaking people, and maybe uh, come to see it that way as well. Um, uh, so uh, there's no argument here between us. Um, I, I do think that, that well, I, I know that the Obama regime and uh, Many Western regimes would prefer not to see, or prefer uh, to believe that it's otherwise. That the, the struggle uh, of Islam, or at least of Islamists against the West, is a religious struggle. But they prefer not to see that because they understand, as uh, the speaker, uh, one of the questioners asked, suggested before, once the conflict turns religious, or if it's seen as religious, it's deeper, less soluble, and. Um, um, that makes it more problematic. Well, the Hamas charter. Okay. Well, well, I didn't understand what you were saying. Yes, the Hamas charter is important in this context also, but I was speaking about 48. I didn't understand what you mentioned, said about revision. Yes. You're talking about the book about the refugees? That's what you're yes. talking about. Yes. Ah, well, Wait. Uh, then, okay, this is something I'd like to speak about, so I'll, I'll yes, but let me, I just want to uh, add one sentence on this point. In, I, I published the original book on the, the birth of the refugee problem, uh, the Palestinian refugee problem, 1947-48 to 1988. I published a second revised version, which is what you're referring to, uh, in 2004. The second version is twice as long as the first version, but much better in my view. Um, uh, and the concluding chapter is exactly, almost exactly the same. In other words, I didn't revise my opinions at all. It's just much longer because I enriched, the material was enriched by archives which had opened in the interim. Mm -hmm. yeah. Have you looked at, or will you look at, the, uh, the thinking of Jews before 48 and, and the struggle of 48 and how they conceived of the war and did they have any realization at any point that in fact it was a religious struggle and in fact they were struggling to survive against the religious onslaught against them. So I'm interested in that, this Jewish point of view. And if you take it to the modern period, your conception of uh, 48 as jihad, how would the Israeli public uh, view that today as a revelation, as something completely new, as a conceptualization that they hadn't considered? Okay. Um, I, I where do we go with that? The Zionist movement was a secular political movement. Its leaders were secular politicians like Ben-Gurion, Sharet, Weizmann. Um, and when they looked at the struggle in the 20s and 30s and 40s, including 48, 
they looked at it as a political struggle between two national movements. They didn't often admit that there were two national movements. They always said, we're a national movement, they're a bunch of bums or whatever. But, but they, or whatever, I'm not, they gave it all sorts of definitions. You know, the, the, the desert against civilization and so on. But, but, but they didn't see them as equal, or at least didn't publicly state that they were equal. But they, in their hearts, understood there's a, a contending, vying national movement against them. This made it difficult for them because they were national, secular nationalists and often socialists and had rebelled against God and the godly world of the diaspora. They didn't actually understand that they were fighting a movement which was also religious. They didn't understand the non-separation of church and state on the other side. They didn't understand the non-modernity of the other side in the struggle. Uh, so people like Ben-Gurion related to it as a simple political struggle. And you will, we will never find almost any reference to jihad or religion on, as motivating the other side. Um, they didn't see it. We, we today see it um, for various reasons. We're much more open and we see things differently. We see things more and more comprehensively, but, but they, they didn't. Um, as to revelation, that is my stating that there was a major jihadi aspect to the war, or well, the war can also be seen, in addition to being a political war, as a jihad, as a holy war from the Arab perspective, 1948. Um, this is precisely the point uh, um, over which my book was criticized by a large number of uh, reviewers, Avi Schlein, Joaf Gelber, people from all, sorts, all sides of the political uh, spectrum, uh, um, they criticized this specific subject. They're saying it wasn't jihad, Benny uh, uh, has it wrong. Uh, uh, so uh, it's, a, it's a new idea. That is what, I'm, what I've been telling you is not accepted, but wasn't accepted formally by historians, and is currently is still in dispute. And maybe it'll be accepted, and maybe it won't. But, but it's, it's, as you said, a revelation in that sense, and is objected to or is contrary to the. A common um, wisdom of historians <coughs> about 1948. Maybe we'll yeah. take two quick questions together. Well, I'll be very quick. Yes, speak I can't hear. You mentioned a series of fatwas, authoritative fatwas issued in the 1947-1948 period. Are they still in effect and are they still meaningful if they're in effect? Somebody asked me exactly that question yesterday in Miami. Um, and I don't know. I don't know what, what happens to fatwas which uh, are thrown into the trash can or not thrown into the trash can? Do they remain on, on the books forever? Uh, what I do know is uh, that Sadat, when he made his peace with Israel in 1978-79, didn't ask Al-Azhar to revoke all previous uh, fatwas, jihadi fatwas, etc., but he did insist that they, don't, they, they not object to the current peace process and the peace treaty between Israel and Egypt, which was signed in 79. So in effect, Al-Azhar's ulama endorsed the peace treaty, if not explicitly, at least implicitly by silence. Uh, and he, uh, Sadat's uh, regime was a dictatorship, and had the ulama or the various theologians uh, publicly said no, they would have been thrown out of jobs or, or thrown into jail, which they understood. So that explains in part uh, what happened. But what happened to the fact was, uh, in terms of their legality and so on, uh, their longevity, I, I, I don't know, I'm not, not sufficiently uh, knowledgeable about the Muslim theology. 
Ben Wen, Larry Absol, Professor at Columbia University of Academic Center. Firstly, thank you so much for a wonderful talk, and even more so for the careful scholarship that you bring. Really, thank you for the care of your scholarship. One thing, just definitionally, when you say jihad, does that necessarily imply it's genocide? Is that necessary? Are those equivalent, or how do they relate to each other? No, the jihad. Well, we. In praxis, what happened in the various waves of jihad, which I talked about, which the, the Arab, Arab Muslim world, Arab Muslim Turkish world, in, in unleashed in the various stages of history in the 14, past 1400 years, it wasn't genocidal. Jihad, and as I quoted from the Quran, that specific key sentence, it doesn't have to be genocide. It requires submission. It requires that the other side concede defeat, accept defeat, and accept Muslim hegemony or mastery or whatever you want to call it. It doesn't necessarily, usually it's followed by conversion rather than genocide. There were places where towns were put to the sword. Muhammad himself killed off the Jewish tribes in Arabia during his ascent, Islam's ascent at the very beginning. The Jews resisted and he killed them and all forcibly converted and enslaved the women and children. Um, uh, but it doesn't necessitate genocide, no, if that's what you're asking. Well, to follow up very quickly, Benny, according to the, the Covenant uh, for the Prevention and Punishment of uh, Genocide, passed by the UN, there's also there's physical annihilation, which is a physical genocide, but there's also cultural genocide. So it sounds like you're... Microphone. It sounds like you're referring to a form of genocide, if you will, as well, not physical death. Okay. There's, an, there's an out, but you have to become part of the okay. system. Okay, question. I'm old-fashioned in the <laughs> I'm surprised that the academic attitudes that we're taking to this question because I think it's relevant to exactly what's going on today. So let me uh, just recall a few things. Uh, when uh, Yasser Arafat refused, uh, uh, the offer that Israel gave him in 2000, uh, one of the uh, reasons given was that he would be assassinated if he didn't, if he did, if he didn't accept it. He never said that. I don't remember him ever saying. No, that. others said that. Maybe. Okay. The the offer that Ehud uh, Omer uh, made to Abu Mazen was rejected. Uh, the rejection of Abu Mazen now to declare Israel as a Jewish state. Uh, if you do not believe that jihad is really what's driving this then you are not understanding the problem in the Middle East. And if you think there is a possibility of ever making peace between the two, I think you have a dream. I, 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 I don't think I said anything at all on this subject. I don't know if a religious fervor or religious belief underlines Arafat's and Abbas's rejection of the peace offers made by Barack, Clinton, and Olmert, 2000-2008. I don't know if it's religious conviction, uh, but I think we're in agreement on, in my, uh, on, 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 in terms of my belief, that I don't think they are willing to accept a two-state solution. We don't want Israel's presence in the Middle East, whether it's driven by religious fervor or some religious fervor and mostly political thinking. They want the Palestine for themselves, for their own uh, uh, political self-determination. Uh, but but uh, I, I, 
in terms of the end product, the conclusion, I think we're in agreement, we don't disagree. Professor, your thesis suggests this unified motivation on the Arab side back in 2008. Is it the commonplace understanding that one of the reasons the Arabs lost was that how fractured they were, and that there are these competing National interests and political interests? Yeah, no, no, I, did, I didn't say that the Arabs were united in 48. It's true that the Arab states went to war on the 15th of May. They invaded the territory of Palestine. But I can talk endlessly about how they were fractured and how they had different political purposes and military purposes, which was one of the reasons they lost the war, as you point out. Jordan went to war because it didn't believe. Abdullah preferred the Jews as neighbors to Husseini as a neighbor, and he also didn't believe that he could actually destroy the Jewish enterprise. And I was too strong, the IDF was too strong. So uh, the Jordanian army crossed the Jordan in order to incorporate the West Bank and East Jerusalem into the Jordanian kingdom. Whereas other Arab states crossed the, 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 their boundaries for other reasons, some of them to destroy Israel, some of them thinking at least to seize chunks of territory which had been assigned to the Jews for statehood by the United Nations. There was disunity. What I'm saying, I didn't say the Arab world unified around Islam in 48. Had they done that, like they did in the 12th and 13th centuries, perhaps they would have won the war. But they weren't unified. But there was an, a strong Islamic element in the go, going to war, in mobilizing the masses, getting the masses to be energized for war, in, uh, to fight and so on. But it doesn't mean that they were united in this effort. And as I say, the Jordanians were a key element in the 48 invasion and had the best army in the Middle East in the 48 war. Um, uh, they uh, broke ranks and weren't interested in destroying the state of Israel, partly because they didn't believe it was possible. What do you think would be the results? What do you think would be the results and the ramifications of the Obama carrying these I don't think it'll go anywhere. That's the ramifications. Maybe there'll be a third intifada, maybe there'll be lots of things, but they won't reach a peace agreement. Because? Because, because on the ideological plane, as I said, I don't think the Arabs of Palestine, their, leading, their elites, want to make peace with the Jewish state. They want all of Palestine for themselves. On a lower level, in terms of the strategy of negotiation and so on, there are wide gulfs between the two sides, and Israel in that on that level, uh, expanding settlements and uh, constructing new settlements, as some of these Hitnachaluyot uh, are, um, um, uh, aren't aiding. They're an obstacle to achieving peace. That is an obstacle in the negotiations. But as I say, with, even without that obstacle, uh, they simply don't want to sign a two-state agreement. That's my view. But not everybody agrees with them. Kevin leaders who proclaimed other motives for... Oh yes, in 1948, in 1948, it's an interesting fact incidentally, in my research I thought it was very interesting. The Arab leaders were very um, pragmatic, people like Abdallah, Farouk, Kuwatli, etc. generally were pragmatic in their statements and moderate in their public statements. The Egyptians announced on the 15th of May that they were crossing, their army was crossing the border in order to save the Arabs of Palestine, not even to attack the Jewish state or destroy the Jewish state, and certainly not as jihad. All they said was we're entering the country to prevent the slaughter of the Palestinian Arabs by the Jews. That was Egypt's official statement for why it went to war on the 15th of May, made on the 15th of May. 
uh, they very rarely talked, the Arab leaders, about driving the Jews into the sea. This was a com common in Israeli propaganda then and later that this was the Arab aim. And maybe it was the Arab aim, or at least in the hearts of many Arabs, they may have thought this was the aim, or they may have thought we will invade Palestine and that will be the end result, even if it is not our political purpose. This is what will happen if the Jews are defeated, they will be slaughtered. But the Arab leaders in general avoided terms like throwing the Jews into the sea or destroying in, in, in the, the Yeshuv or the State of Israel. They usually avoided this completely. It's very difficult to find a quote of, by any of them saying that this is going to happen. There is one misquote incidentally, a famous one by a man I talked about here called Abdul Rahman Azam, which is often trotted out and was trotted out by me, mistakenly in a number of my earlier books, in which he says this will be a war of extermination like the Crusaders, uh, no, like the Mongol invasion of the 13th century when they slaughtered the population of Baghdad. In, uh, but it emerges, I was quoting from another book, and it emerges that he didn't make that statement in 1948, he made it months before, during 47, uh, and not in as definitive uh, terms as later he was quoted as doing. Um, uh, this is the truth about Azam's famous statement, which is always trotted out everywhere, but it's not an accurate statement, and it's always misplaced in terms of its timing, which is very important, because everybody said he said it on the 15th of May as the Arab states were invading uh, Israel, or <coughs> Israel. So it wasn't made then. So uh, this will be the final question from Benny Weintraub of the um, Benny, do you think these Islamic movements are, are um, current right now in the Middle East will at some point um, vanish and embrace modernity? And is Tunisia, for example, is that a possible model where that they're undercut some of these potent Islamic movements? I, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not, you know. I'm, I'm not uh, my wife always tells me to talk about the past, not the future. Because I know a little bit about the past, but the future I know very little. Um, <laughs> It's true that Tunisia is in the hands of moderate Islamists, and then one has to remember Tunisia has a unique history. It was the most secular and modern of the Arab states liberating themselves from a Western imperialist governance. I don't know, I just don't know what will happen. But I think the more interesting case, the more important case in terms of turning the tide of Islam or Islamism is the case of Egypt. And that's the one one has to watch. Egypt is uh, the weather vane of the Arab world. And uh, if it's successful in suppressing the Muslim Brotherhood uh, for a long period, um, that might be the right mo the, the model adopted in other Arab countries. If uh, the military and the secularists fail in Egypt, uh, that will return the Islamist to power probably in most of the Arab Benny, on behalf of ISGAF and everybody here, thank you very much for your really, really appreciate it. Benny was actually at the University of Miami yesterday on his staff and uh, he's traveling <coughs> this semester, so thank you for all the efforts you made to be here. We appreciate it. Uh, next Monday, we have Dan Kaluni, who's giving, I think, a very important talk on sort of an academic response to the BDS movement. And then Benny Weithal will be here on the 26th, which I think was uh, Wednesday. Thursday, next Thursday, 5.30 the same time. Uh, Benny will be speaking about anti-Semitism in Europe, and he's really doing important work in that area. So thank you for coming. I hope to see you soon.